Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is the first uh, message to the seven churches, and specifically to Ephesus. So Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. This also is God's holy word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May we go to our God and ask for his blessing on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we acknowledge that we are sinners in need of your mercy. And Father, that we do not earn our favor with you. That favor with you is entirely established by our Lord Jesus. That we wear the very robe of his righteousness. That our sins have been washed away by his perfect sacrifice. Father, we thank you for you have called us the great duties. You've given us the great commission. You've called us the perseverance. We pray, Father, that we might do so. Father, we might do so for the right reasons, because of our love for Jesus Christ. And we thank you for his love for us. Uh, Father, we pray and thanks that you loved us with so great a love that you sent your son to die on behalf of sinners. What we did not deserve, what we did not earn. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, that sinners can be forgiven. That those uh, who have gone wayward, who have lost sight of the why, can be brought back. You command us to repent and turn from our ways. Father, we pray that we would cherish Jesus Christ, that we would draw closely to him, that we would have great joy in being with him and serving him. We thank you for your love for us, and we pray, Father, that your son Jesus would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. How often do you hear or do you see this happening? Uh, You think about a Christian couple, a faithful, uh, godly couple, that they get married, and the Lord opens the womb, and, you know, this is not taken for granted. He opens the womb, gives them the increase of the womb. They have several children. Uh, They raise them well. That uh, none of these children, all of these children profess faith in Christ, and their lives testify to that. None of them spent any time in prison or temporarily in a holding cell jail. And after uh, years, decades of child-rearing, of godly instruction, of family worship, of hosting prayer meetings and Bible studies in their home, uh, having 
uh, couples over for couples counseling, discipleship, young men, young women. The children grow up, they leave the home, and they have godly families of their own. And then after 25 or 30 years or however that many years that might be, the man looks across the table at his wife as empty nesters, and they look at each other and they say, I don't know who that person is. It's a situation in which we think about uh, a man and his wife have lost their first love. And perhaps at times you think about how this applies in the context of the church and a relationship with Jesus Christ. That here, the church in Ephesus, it represents the proverbial church that is faithful, Bible-believing, gospel-promoting, doctrinally sound, faithful in so many ways. This church is diligent in what they're called to do. You look at the commendations, that they're not taken lightly. Yet, could it be that they were so focused on the what, what we ought to be doing, that they forgot the who, the Jesus. They forgot Jesus, whom they serve. And they forgot the why. It's because you and I, we love Jesus Christ, and we desire his glory and not our own. Here, this message is for us. This message is for us. Each of these letters, each of the seven letters, apply to us. Perhaps in the life of the church, perhaps in the life of an individual Christian, at various times that we have to hear these things. It is our Lord Jesus who speaks. This book of Revelation, it ought not to be ignored. In it, Revelation 1.3, it contains such a great promise that there is blessing promised to those who read this word of prophecy, to those who hear it, and to those who heed it, to those who keep it. There's so much imagery and symbolism here, uh, flowery, ornate descriptions, and language. Yet, uh, we also must understand that if you ask a thousand preachers, you'll get a thousand different interpretations, but what we must focus on is the central theme of the book, the big picture, the main idea that we ought not to read spiritual meaning into all the individual details and imagery. The bottom line is that we have Jesus Christ and his victory. It is proclaimed and his return is foretold. We think about the difficulties of the church and the turmoil that she goes through. It's a reminder to us that despite what our eyes of flesh see, Jesus is already victorious and so is his bride, the church. These seven letters, keep in mind, they build on a foundation. They build on the foundation of Revelation 2 and 3. The letters, seven letters are contained in those two chapters. They build on the foundation from Revelation 1. When we look at uh, John's Patmos vision of Christ, <clears throat> Revelation 1, 9 to 20, there were various descriptions, various images that he presented, and little snippets of those uh, images are presented at the beginning of each one of these letters. Have you noticed that? Christ is presented. There's a certain uh, identification, a, a characteristic about Jesus. It's as if uh, Jesus is reminding them, hey, listen, this is why I have authority to speak into the life of the church, because Jesus is Lord of his church. May we never forget that. When we look at these seven messages, these seven letters, <clears throat> they they take to a general form. And 
you think about the number seven. So there's seven letters. <clears throat> there weren't only seven churches in Asia Minor there. There were, there were more. So seven is a letter of uh, number of completeness. So also within the seven letters, there, there tends to be a fairly standard form of seven sections. Uh, there are exceptions to that, uh, to that rule because here we, we think about how uh, there, is, there is an identification. Uh, there's, there's also uh, the, a commendation, a, a criticism. There's some kind of a challenge and there's some kind of a promise. Uh, here, when you look at the various letters, there's no commendation to Laodicea that you look at her. Uh, there just simply wasn't. And then you look at Smyrna and Philadelphia, uh, they don't have a rebuke. There's not a criticism for them. There's, there's encouragement, right, going through difficulties. <clears throat> and we see that within the church, Satan always follows this double method. Uh, persecute the church until they realize it's too costly to speak and proclaim the gospel and live out the gospel. So, so persecute them until they are silenced, until you shut up and stop living and stop speaking and stop sharing the gospel. Or the other way is you just try to bribe them with wealth and praise of men and, and uh, the satanic lullaby of comfort and ease until they're really, the church is really no different from the world and, and they're not a light to the world. They're, they're darkness unto darkness. Here we often see <clears throat> that the temptations for the church in these letters is to conform to the culture of the world. And more often than not, <clears throat> what we see happening is that the church follows the world. They're only about 10 or 20 years behind them. So here we see in this letter to the church in Ephesus, <clears throat> while persevering in truth, discernment, loyalty, and service, may the church always remember and be motivated by her love for Christ. While persevering in truth, discernment, loyalty, and service, may the church always remember and be motivated by her love for Christ. <clears throat> we'll look at this in four points. The first is Christ's characteristics. Second, Christ's commendation. Second, Christ's, uh, third, Christ's censure. And fourth, Christ's challenge. So the first point, Christ's characteristics in verse one. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. <clears throat> it's as if this first verse, <clears throat> Jesus speaking to uh, Ephesus, he's answering the question, just who does this Jesus think he is? He introduces himself, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. At the end of uh, Revelation chapter 1, we said at verse 20, <clears throat> Jesus gives the interpretation. The seven stars are the seven angels. And here, angels uh, can have two definitions. It's an ethereal being, like uh, uh, Gabriel or Michael, <clears throat> or it's a messenger. Simply put, messenger. This is probably, the, the latter is probably the better interpretation, that, that Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars. He holds the messengers. So throughout church history, uh, in all places at all times, the messengers of the gospel, Jesus holds them. It's true because he holds every one of his elect. He holds all of his people in his hand. No one can snatch him out of his hand. It's true that he, you cannot snatch the minister out of his hand either. There's also 
He is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Revelation 1.20 speaks about how the golden lampstands are the churches. So Jesus is one who walks among his churches. And we learned last week that Jesus, if he is present with his church, then it doesn't matter who's missing. And if Jesus is absent from his church, then it matters not who or how many are present. Jesus is here. If Jesus is here, that's all that matters. Here, we think also of Jesus who promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Meaning, in all the challenges, in all the difficulties that you go through in your life, because of the Lord Jesus, Jesus has promised he is with you. He's with you to the end. There are many claims to silence from others. <clears throat> you heard the sayings. Who are you to criticize? Or how about this colorful one? Who died and made you king? You heard of that one? Hey, who, who died and made you king? Okay, well, we can, we can play on that. We can answer this question in, in the name of Jesus. So who died and made you king? Well, it's, it, the question is not quite right. It's who died and made you a child of the king? Maybe that's a better question. Who died and made you the child of the king? It's who died? Jesus died. And what did he do? He made you a child of the king by his death and the resurrection. Adopted into Christ's family. So who died and made you the child of the king? Jesus did. And that's why he has the authority to speak into the life of the church. And he has authority to speak into your life. Perhaps some of you pride yourselves in thinking that you love the church a whole lot. I don't doubt that. What we have in the one who is speaking in the word here, Jesus Christ, there is no one who loves the church more. He proved it because he died to purify his church. So you ask, as the world asks, hey, who are you to speak? Jesus is speaking. He has authority over your life and over mine. So when he speaks, then we ought to, as Job does, we ought to cover our mouth and listen and stop making excuses. Stop counter-accusing. Now I ask, what about you? Are you able and willing to listen to your Lord Jesus Christ even as he addresses you? Because here Jesus is the one who possesses all authority and power. That you think... A master would know his servant. When Jesus speaks, he knows. He knows his people. He knows every intimate detail about your life and mine. And when he speaks, we should be those who heed. This is the first point, Christ's characteristics. The second point, Christ's commendation. In verses 2 and 3 and in verse 6. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse 6, also, yet, you th yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. <clears throat> We have some understanding about the church in Ephesus, even as there is an epistle to the Ephesians written by Paul, 
we have the accounts in Acts 19 and 20, and then also the, uh, the pastoral epistles, uh, 1 and 2 Timothy. We, our elder read earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that Timothy was to remain there in Ephesus. So here we ought to understand that, uh, that there was some pattern of church and that you have a pattern of faithful ministers, that Timothy was a faithful minister and he was the pastor at that church in Ephesus. Christ begins this letter by commending their works, their toil, and their patient endurance there in verse 2. These would have been hardworking, diligent Christians at the church in, in Ephesus. Their method would not be that they were big complainers. We don't hear that because here Jesus says that they were bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. What happens when people become weary is they start to complain. They start to grumble. It sounds like they weren't doing that. These would have been <clears throat> uh, Christians who had a heart for evangelism, care for the poor, and they would have been diligent in Bible instruction and catechizing. You can imagine what they would have been. <clears throat> so Timothy, we mentioned, was, their, was one of their ministers then. Uh, we don't know how long of a period that was, but uh, Paul, uh, Paul would have, he would have uh, planted the church as he did, went about his evangelism. Uh, we see in Acts 20 that there were already elders. There were, he, he met with, he, he knelt down and prayed with the elders. He warned them. You see also in Acts 18 that Apollos, a Jew, he came, we're told, he came to Ephesus. He was mighty in the scriptures. He was an educated man. And he was a great help to those who had believed through grace. Now, did he remain there for long? We don't know. But uh, he was there. And it was at Ephesus that major work was done in his life. Christ commends the church in Ephesus for their no-tolerance policy towards evil. <clears throat> we see that uh, mentioned in verse 6, that he says, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So part of loving and serving and following Jesus Christ is that our loves and our hates are transformed. We begin to love the things that he loves, and we begin to hate the things that he hates. Now, who are these Nicolaitans? We don't know exactly. Uh, but some idea is that they were people who, uh, like others, uh, in other, the other messages to the seven churches, that they were those who were promoting this concept of licentious living, of lawless living. That uh, since we're saved by grace, we can live however we want. We can live in complete disobedience to the law. And probably something tied to, since uh, matter is evil and it doesn't matter, then we can live however we want. There was immorality involved. Uh, for the people who were called out of immorality or out, out of the world, think about the idol worship. The temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana was there. And uh, there was conflict because of the statues of, of uh, Artemis made out of silver. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Remember this chant they, they were shouting. Uh, but here we ought to understand that there were certain Christians who thought, well, we can go into the idol's temple and, and also participate in this worship and in their immorality, and that it's okay. We, you hear that in uh, the, the letter of the, to the Corinthians. And the Ephesians were saying, no, it, it, it must not be done. They didn't succumb to this false teaching as other 
other churches did in the seven letters. Christ commends them for their discernment and their willingness to deal with these false apostles. Here, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Think back for a moment in Acts chapter 20. When Paul met with the elders, he specifically said, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So the warning was, Paul was saying, savage wolves will come. Commendably, the church in Ephesus did not succumb to these savage wolves that were in their midst. It's because they had discernment. Think about discernment and how, how much it is that we need that, especially today. It was discernment regarding the content of their teaching. The Ephesian Christians needed to have a thorough understanding of God's word to be able to taste the difference. For, for men who are charged uh, in the government <clears throat> for determining, counterfeiting, and identifying counterfeit money, what they need to be able to do is become very familiar with the real deal. They have to know what the real deal looks like so they can say, that doesn't seem like the real thing. So the Ephesian Christians must have been those who had a thorough understanding of God's word. You see that same pattern regarding the Bereans, Acts 17.11. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. It was the Apostle Paul preaching. But the Bereans were searching the scriptures, the Old Testament that they had then, to see whether or not what he was saying was true. And this is the pattern for true shepherds. Examine what I teach by the one and only standard of God's word. This is what a true shepherd will say. Hey, don't take my word for it. Examine what I say by the word of God. See if it is consistent. The false teacher will say, trust what I say and do not question it. You see the, the content of their teaching. 1 Timothy 1.3, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. It's not merely intellectual head knowledge. What you'll often find with the false teachers is that they're going to teach you about something intellectually, but their lives won't reflect a change. Meaning that the doctrine that that is taught in the church, it must affect how we live. And if it doesn't, then it is worthless doctrine. Besides the content of their teaching, there was also the fruit of their lives. Matthew seven fifteen and 16. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Meaning, the tree is recognized by its fruits. The mango tree does not produce figs, or vice versa. A bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. False teachers will promote that they are above the law, and they will teach, do as I say, not as I do. 
There must be no separation between the teachings and life. Rather, there should be a consistency between doctrine and practice. This is why the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely, because if you persevere in them, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Regarding the life aspect, notice that there was one of the requirements that the Apostle Paul gave in 1 Timothy 3 regarding elders. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Why do you ask that? Why is that important? It's because goats recognize goats. You realize that? So the, the huckster, he comes in to the church, he spins a pretty story, and those inside the church are impressed. But then when he goes into the world, they still recognize him. Hey, you're still that same old huckster. This is why there's that requirement. Goats know goats. In contrast to the Ephesians, but keep in mind, this is actually a commendation. Christ is commending these Ephesians, the Ephesian church, that they had discernment. You see what happens when there is no discernment. You look at the Corinthians and what the Apostle Paul addresses to them. 2 Corinthians 11. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if, we receive, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Here the Apostle Paul is saying to these Corinthians, hey, you guys have no discernment. Someone comes preaching a different gospel. Salvation by works and faith. Hey, no big deal. Salvation by works only. No big deal. He speaks about what happens to them, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. Think about that for a moment. What Paul is saying is, hey, listen, Corinthians, you've put up with a whole lot. There are these, these false apostles who have come in and challenged, hey, Paul, where, where are your commendation letters? These are our letters. And we think about how they treated these Corinthians. That they, were, they enslaved them, they devoured them, they swindled them, they exalted themselves over them, they hit them in the face. And you think about how, for Christians, for the true Christians, when we talk to others, when we speak to them about necessary things in their lives, it's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, they despised me more than these people who enslaved them and swindled them. I, I pointed them, I pointed out their sin and pointed to their hope in Jesus, but they're saying they hated me more than they hate these people who enslaved them and swindled them. There's no discernment there. Here, he also, it's implied that there's not only discernment, but there's a boldness and a maturity to deal with the false teachers. How often do you see this happen, that people recognize someone as false, but there's, no one has the backbone to deal with it within the church. There must be a backbone to say, hey, this is wrong. This is identified. This is singled out. I ask you, people of God, where are you in the matter of discernment? Are you regularly in God's word? And do you know it such that you may use it as the sword of the spirit? 
if someone is speaking something that sounds like the Word of God? Is that enough for you to say, oh, yes, he's speaking the Word of God? Is it out of context that people use the Word? Do you resist more vigorously those who point out your sin and challenge you to greater obedience than you do to those who attempt to enslave you or to intimidate you by anger, by guilt, by shame, by fear? Those who would even hit you in the face. Christ also commends their patient endurance and persecution in verse 3. And I know you endure you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. It is when a person must suffer for the name of Christ that their true metal or their true colors show. The false teachers will change garments when their profit and praise are in any way diminished. When union with Christ becomes net loss, Rather than net gain, their position and their convictions will change. Where are you? Where am I? Persecution for the name of Christ is sobering because it requires that we answer the question what value is Christ to you? If you're going to say, hey, it was, it was popular to be a Christian. It's how I got ahead. It's how I got respect. But when you're despised for the name of Jesus, then you must ask, well, what profit is he to you? You think about the disciples. This is Jesus's drive them out of the church sermon. It was a John, John 6. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? The crowds all left. He had 12 remaining. And Jesus says to him, he doesn't say, hey, hey guys, don't go. He says, hey, do you want to go also? Meaning, hey, I'm inviting you to leave. The crowd has left. What about you guys? And what was their answer to them? You have the very words of eternal life. Or to, to where, to whom shall we go? You have the very words of eternal life. When you ask the question, what value is Christ to you? That you and I should be answering that question Jesus, you have the very words of eternal life. We cannot get that anywhere else. Whatever shame, whatever rejection, whatever blood, whatever tears that need to be shed, whatever rejection from the world, those are small costs because Jesus alone is the one who gives his people eternal life. Here, for the Ephesians, they endured patiently. And they did not grow weary. They maintained loyalty in opposition. And this was commendable. This is what you and I should aspire to. So that's the second point, Christ's commendation. We have the third point, Christ's censure, in verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here, we ought to understand the context of this censure. This is not coming from a uh, nitpicking uh, husband. It's not coming from a condemning judge. It's coming from a neglected and unrequited husband. It's coming from a husband 
that after 20 or 30 years has wondered where her wife, where his wife is. The several children, the empty nesters, the child-rearing, uh, the faithful service to the Lord, and he's wondering, where is she? She has no delight in me anymore. You think back, perhaps some of you remember the days before marriage, early in marriage. You could talk for hours on the phone. An hour, five hours go by. Oh, I forgot to eat. I'm talking to my wife or I'm talking to my girlfriend. And then you think about how as times change, busyness comes in and you, you hardly spend five or ten minutes. Well, this is telling us, even in this context, those are the things that have to change. Right? They have to ask, where is that first love that we had? It must be there. It ought to be there. You think also, another analogy, likened to the change from one generation to the next. <clears throat> you can study anything about immigrant families, immigrants to the United States, or immigrants to any country, for that matter. <clears throat> They're very similar to uh, first generation or the generations of Christians. You think about the immigrant groups. So, the immigrant group, the first generation comes. They fled great danger that uh, maybe not all of their family members made it out of their home country. Half of them. They had siblings. Half of them never made it out. So they came. They came with $21 in their back pocket. That's all they had. And they, they worked hard. They labored. They saw great opportunity and advantage here. As in, they come here without complaints because they said, we left with our lives and that was it. And many of my loved ones never survived. And they come here and they're so happy. There's education. There's opportunity. And as they, they work diligently, they, they, they make up you know, some kind of a, a, a sizable. They become uh, upper middle class. They, they become wealthy. They become successful. And then their children, you look at their children. Their children, they had it all easy. Because their parents worked, they both worked two jobs each or something. And uh, the second and the third generation, they grow up with safety, with blessing, with privilege. They grow up in a Christian home with godly parents that they didn't know what it was like to be in the world. And they don't have that comparison. We know what it was like to be under Pharaoh. And now we know what it's like to be under Jesus. And Jesus indeed is the gentle and the loving master. The later generations begin to take for granted what they have. And they start to seek acceptance by the world. This is oftentimes what happens in the generations of Christians, that first generation, oftentimes diligent. They know what it was like. They know what they're missing. The second and third generation often take things for granted. Is, it, is this censure coming in that context? Here we think about the commendations. There were many. There were laudable things. Perhaps it's simply that they forgot the who that they serve, the Lord Jesus. Loyalty to a system of doctrine will only lead to a dead coldness, a judgmental attitude. We have a system that was written by dead men. However long ago, was it 10 years ago? Was it 100 years ago? Was it 1,000 years ago? Loyalty to a system of doctrine not to Jesus Christ, who is Lord, 
will only lead to a harsh, judgmental, cold attitude. Loyalty to conservatism, whether it be to traditional values or to worship style, leads only to harshness to those who disagree. Persevering for the wrong cause, that of self-righteousness. We've seen this before. In the early church, was it 4th, 5th century, during the, during the time of Augustine, there, were this, there was this group called the Donatists. So uh, these were the ones, I mean, there was persecution going on, and uh, it was systematic that uh, the, the state came and they said, hey, you will hand over uh, your scriptures. Because people didn't have 20 Bibles of different versions on their shelf, right? Maybe a family might only have only one. They would share it, right? This is before the time of the Gutenberg uh, printing press, right? So the scribe had to do it. was expensive. So the state was thinking, hey, if we can burn and destroy all of the scriptures, then our conscience can rest. That's what it was. So we will burn all of them. And any of the Christians who, they were called traitors or, or traditores, those who handed over the scriptures and the Donatists had said, those people can never have any part in the church once again. Yeah. Is that a little self-righteous there? Sounds like it. Then you have the why. The why is because of your love for Christ. Because of your love for Christ. Your desire to see his glory and not your own, not my own. You ask, why is this love for yours even great? Your love for Christ is only as your great, as only as great as your understanding of his love for you. The greater you grow in your understanding of Christ's love for you, the greater you will grow in your love for Christ. We love because he first loved us. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ is the one and the only one who saves you from your sins. He did it because of so great a love that he had for sinners. The greater you realize the greatness of your sin, the greater you realize the greatness of your Savior, and the greater you will love our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a regular reminder that we need of our duty to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Deuteronomy 6 reminds us of that. It means that there is no part of your life that can be cut off from the love of Christ. Every thought captive, every desire, every feeling captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. If Satan can come into your heart and get your emotions about something, that's, that's like a loose cannon. That's dangerous. If he can say something that suddenly you're agitated, between, whether between you and your brother in Christ or between you and Christ especially, there's danger there. You cannot let Satan walk in here and agitate your heart about something. He cannot come between your love for Christ. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all that is in you must be love for Christ. 
We see also there is a call to repentance here along with the censure in verse 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Here. It's saying, hey, think back to your relationship with Christ. The where you were. When you were asking the question, hey, wait a minute. This sounds too good to be true. Who can make such an offer? Only the Lord Jesus can. And he never lies. He always speaks the truth. And, and you say, well, this, this idea of uh, how free, how gracious, how kind, how generous. I've never seen that in the world. Of course you haven't. And you never will. It's only from Christ that you receive such a generous and great offer. You mean to tell me that I have to forsake my sins? Yes, you must. That's, that's the other side of the coin to faith. Is that he who thinks I can hold on to my sin and hold on to Christ. Well, you don't really have Christ if you do that. Part of what Christ calls us to is new life. We are a new creation. The evidence of the new creation is that you repent. It's not, repentance is not merely, oh, okay, that was sin. You're right, that's sin. I'm going to keep doing it though. No, repentance is acknowledgement of sin. It is a grieving over our sins, that we, we've offended God. It's not because of the consequences. Oh, shoot, uh, my relations are, are, are broken. Uh, trust is breached, and I want that back. No, that's not repentance. Repentance is, I've offended God. I've grieved Him. And then it's a desire for new obedience. It's a willingness to say, I'm going to forsake that sin. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to toss it into the depth of the ocean, and I'm going to seek Jesus Christ. If you see anyone who refuses to repent, what they're saying is, I love my sin more than Jesus. That's what they're saying. If you're going to have Jesus, you must forsake your sin. Here, I want you to see that this call to repentance is not an absolute and harsh condemnation. It's not a, you're damned and there's nothing you can do to change it. Jesus actually holds out hope. Anytime there is a rebuke from the Lord... There's actually, think about it positively, it's actually mercy. Because God doesn't have to rebuke. He can simply do the, the finger lightning bolt and strike someone dead. This is what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. There was no opportunity for repentance. It was a striking dead. So when you rebuke, and it doesn't come from a voice from the heavens. It comes oftentimes in your reading of the word, it often comes from someone who's sitting next to you. We ought to understand that this is mercy from God that we receive. We ought to repent and follow him. The warning was, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What does a church become when it refuses to repent and follow Jesus Christ? It becomes a social club. So that's the third point, Christ's censure. We have fourth point, Christ's challenge in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Ultimately, the question is, who are God's people? It is those who hear. It is those who listen. 
It is those who obey the word of Christ. It's recognizing the voice of your master and heeding it. To believe, to have faith means that we believe the promises in God's word. It means that we obey his commandments and that we heed his warnings and that we do so out of love, out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. Here, I warn you, do not walk away thinking these warnings, they can never happen to me. They can never happen to my church. Because I'm telling you, it can. To this church, it can. The watchers, if they stop watching, it will happen. To your life, if you're no longer faithful to the Lord Jesus, the first love, how quickly that can be lost. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. Anyone who thinks that can never happen to me, I'm going to tell you, it's already happened to you. Think of also the hope and the promise that Christ holds forth there in verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We must not see this promise as a wage. He who conquers then achieves eternal life or the tree of life. No, this is a description, a a description, the evidence of one who is saved is that he perseveres to the end. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us because Jesus is the one who has conquered. He conquered us first and he carries us to the very end. He brings us safely to his heavenly kingdom. But the very description is that we are more than conquerors. We continue on. We remain faithful. We maintain loyalty and love to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we think about this letter to the Ephesians. What it is not. It is not a warning against being faithful to serve the Lord Jesus. It's not a warning against being diligent to serve the Lord Jesus. It's not a warning against patient endurance, against persevering in the Christian faith and life. All those are good. Rather, it is a warning against forgetting the who, Jesus, that you serve. It is a warning against forgetting the why, out of love for Christ. Even as you go about the what, the service in this life and in the church, may the what not cause us to forget the who, Jesus, and the why for love of Christ and for his glory. A question to you about discernment of what not you have lost your first love. The question of joy. Does joy describe your new life in Christ? And does joy describe your service to him? If there is love for Christ, there necessarily will be joy in your life and mine. When difficulty comes your way, For the sake of Christ, for his name, do you lament in your own personal pity party? Or do you turn to seek comfort in Christ, whom you love? The pity party should not be. We know what our true comfort is when difficulties come. May you and I turn to our Lord Jesus in love. Do you often compare yourselves to others? 
especially in a sense of who's better, who's best. Warnings, you see that in Philippians 2. Consider others as better or more important than yourselves. This is because people are thinking, hey, this person's beneath me. Well, why are we even thinking that? If we're thinking that we're already in the wrong, we should be thinking that Jesus is best and he calls us to be like him. And he's given me this brother to encourage me and to point me to him. God's rebuke is not a dead-end condemnation. It's not saying you're lost and you're condemned forever. With repentance, there is opportunity for forgiveness. That God calls his people to repentance. And may we be those who see that as his mercy. And that we are reminded of the gospel that all who repent and trust in Jesus Christ will indeed receive the hope of forgiveness. May we trust in our Lord Jesus all the more. And may we delight in our love for him. May we go to our God together.